Happy Independence Day. Would you, um, yes, it's a reason to celebrate. This morning, would you open your Bibles to John chapter 8. In the New York Harbor, a statue has been greeting immigrants for many, many years who are seeking freedom and refuge from tyranny in our country. And in that Statue of Liberty at the base is inscribed some words written by Emma Lazarus from a sonnet called The New Colossus. And the rendering is as if the lady or as if America is saying, give me your tired, give me your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And it's the lady holding up the torch, welcoming people in. On this, the 4th of July, we celebrate our 228th birthday of being a nation. Back in 1776 on this day, as the Declaration of Independence was adopted by this country into law, the framers of that declaration understood that freedom came from God who gave us this nation. And in the Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph, we all know it well, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, not evolved, created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God gave us ultimate freedom, our framers believed. This country was a gift to enjoy from our Creator. Some years later, a man by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville came from France, sent over by his government, to look at this experiment in democracy. That's what we were known as, the great experiment in democracy, for it was believed in Europe at that time that freedom would lead to anarchy. And so de Tocqueville was here, and he looked around and interviewed people, noticed things, and he wrote, America is the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest power over men's souls. And nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man since the country where now it has the widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest on earth. Here's a guy who recognized that freedom was tied to Christianity, that there was a freedom from spiritual tyranny that caused us to enjoy the freedom as a nation. De Tocqueville said something else about our country. He said, America is great because America is good. But when America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. So the question is this morning, how free are you? What is freedom exactly? We're going to look in John chapter 8, beginning around verse 30. And uh, the word free appears four times in the paragraph or the section we're going to read. What kind of freedom does Jesus refer to when he mentions being free? Is it freedom of speech, freedom of expression, 
freedom to hold and own private property. It's a spiritual freedom, of course. It's freedom over ignorance. It's freedom from sin. And it's freedom from death. Those three freedoms Jesus will allude to in the text we're about to read. Now let me give you a little background. Uh, Jesus is in the temple area. Uh, He's not been getting along with the religious people very well. He always has this conflict and this set of arguments with these religious folks. And it's getting him more and more into trouble. And so, um, while he's speaking and he's surrounded by dissenters, there are some Jews who are listening to Jesus speak, and as they listen, in their hearts, on the fly, at the moment, they put their faith in him. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The first freedom he mentions is freedom from ignorance. Now keep in mind, there's Jews who believed in him. They put their faith in him. He turns to them and he says, you're my disciples indeed if you abide in my word. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And I think he's saying that because I take you back now to verse 1 and 2 in our text of uh, John 8. There are these enemies around. There are these dissenters. And I want you just to notice that as verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So Jesus is having now a conversation with these guys, and it continues. Verse 13, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them. In verse 19, Jesus answered. Uh, In verse... Um, 23, and he said to them. And then uh, this continues all the way down to verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. So the idea is a crowd is gathered. Most of them don't believe in him. But as he continues to speak, some do believe in him. And he turns to them and he says, you abide in my word. And you're my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus understood that a key to discipleship is knowing truth, loving truth, and abiding in truth. And so he says this to them. I've also noticed that wherever I've traveled. I remember going to China one time and smuggling Bibles into China. And here's a country where, by and large, most believers, most still to this day, do not own a Bible. And sometimes there are areas where if they have one, they're caught and they're imprisoned. Many pastors, leaders don't have Bibles, so I'm bringing in Bibles, but I was smuggling in Braille Bibles for the blind. And I remember bringing them in, dropping them off, and months later receiving a photograph from blind believers, only blind physically, they saw more than most of the population of China, and they held up their Bibles and took this photograph, tears streaming down their faces. 
They love the Word. They love the truth. Or I remember going to India for the first time and speaking at a church service in the morning. And I spoke for an hour. And I thought I was done. And they said, oh no, you're not done. You're just getting started. And they wanted me to go three or four hours because they said, we have walked for hours to get here. And we want to hear the truth, the Word. Loving the truth, abiding in the truth. Ignorance creates bondage on a natural level and on a supernatural level. On a natural level, if a person lacks education, there are certain doors that will be closed to that individual. If he's illiterate, even more doors will be closed. But in in the spiritual realm, spiritual ignorance also creates a sort of a bondage. You cannot thrive spiritually without spiritual truth. The prophet Hosea cried out, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And in the New Testament, Paul writes about people who are always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Freedom is always related to truth. Truth unlocks the door of freedom. Two words I want you to notice in that text. The word abide, which means to continue in or remain in or keep in close contact with. And the word disciple, which means a learner, literally. A learner. A disciple, a learner, is somebody who listens and listens so that he or she might do. Listening carefully in order to apply to my life is the idea. So disciple and abiding in the truth go hand in hand. Hearing as well as heeding. heard about an agnostic professor who went to the Fiji Islands and he noticed that many were believers on the particular island he was on. And uh, this agnostic professor said to the chief, you know, you look like a bright guy and quite a leader. And I am so sorry that missionaries have come to your country and duped you into believing this stuff. Nobody, he said, believes the Bible anymore. We know it's a fable. And it's so sad that somebody as bright as you and a leader of your own people, your own tribe, have bought into this stuff, this scam, and that you too believe the Bible. The chief smiled and he said, you see that rock over there? On that rock we smashed the heads of victims. You see the furnace next to it? There we roasted their bodies. If it hadn't been for missionaries and the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel to change us from cannibals into Christians, you'd have been our supper by now. Question, what is your relationship to the Word? Do you love it? Do you abide in it? Is it something that's like, yes, can't leave home without it? My Bible. Because your attitude and relationship to the truth will show your attitude and relationship to the God who gave you that truth. Solomon wrote to his son, and let's apply it as if God were speaking to us. My son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, if you cry out for discernment and seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then 
Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. And what are the results of hearing and heeding, of knowing and abiding in the truth? Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. Why? Because God's Word tells us the truth about life. Everybody comes into this world and everyone invariably asks the same questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose and meaning of life? God's truth gives us answers to all of those and sets us free. Now granted, sometimes we're confronted with the truth and it hurts. We don't like it. God gets a little too close to home. For when we open up the Bible, it reveals that we're all sinners. It reveals that we all need a Savior. And it might reveal from time to time that the behavior we're presently engaged in is dangerous and we need to get rid of it. We need to repent from it. But I like the old Jewish proverb that says, better is an ugly truth than a beautiful lie. Better is an ugly truth than a beautiful lie. The Word of God, the truth of God, will set you and I free in specific areas that we may be in bondage to. The way Paul describes the truth, the Bible, God's truth, he said, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the word he used for sword is the, the Roman short sword used in close hand-to-hand combat for making vital blows in a battle. That is, applying specific truths, specific promises to our lives. The writer of Hebrews says the Word of God is alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Listen to it in the New Living Translation. That's Hebrews 4 once again. The Word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our inmost thoughts and desires, and it exposes us for what we really are. So, we open the book, we find God's truth, we find out what it says about life, about marriage, about relationships, about friendship, about managing money, about how to get along with other people, about uh, depression, anxiety, all of those things, when we read them and abide in them, the truth sets us free in those areas. And I would say that we are still bound in areas where the truth has not penetrated. We are still bound in whatever area of our life the truth of God hasn't penetrated. Jesus said to the religious bigwigs, you err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And here's the real sad thing, is that at one time in our country, this book was read in public schools. It was a time when you could sit in a public school and you'd open the book and you would be taught grammar from it and English from it. You'd be taught God's truth from it in public schools. Samuel Adams, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, The right of freedom, being a gift of God Almighty, the rights of the colonists as Christians, may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver, which are to be found clearly and written and promulgated in the New Testament. 
founding father, a founding signer of the Declaration of Independence, understood you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So the first freedom is freedom from ignorance. The second is freedom from sin. Now look at verse 33. Jesus mentions this freedom bit and they answered him and they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, I honestly have no idea what they are referring to. When they said, we have never been in bondage to anyone, I would say, a reality check, boys. Why don't you just remember your own history? When haven't you been in bondage to anyone? Let's see, let's go back to Egypt. You were there for 400 years as slaves. God gave you a land. Then you disobeyed. You were taken into an Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. Then the Babylonian captivity for 70 years in 548, etc. And let's see, then there were the Medes, the Persians, there were the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids. And right now, you happen to have Roman coins in your pockets. Is that right, boys? They're in charge of your country. When haven't you been in bondage? Your whole life, your whole history. This is called massive historical denial. This is called historical revisionism. Now, I don't know if they were referring to political things or economic things, but what Jesus' point is, you can be free in every other area, but you can be a slave to sin. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them most assuredly. By the way, whenever he says that, pay very close attention. King, King Jimmy will put it, verily, verily. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. There is a slavery far worse than political enslavement, economic enslavement, and it's the slavery of sin. There's an old axiom that says, if you sow a thought, you'll reap an action. If you sow an action, you'll reap a habit. If you sow a habit you'll reap a lifestyle. You sow a lifestyle, you'll reap a destiny. It's the slavery of sin that he mentions. A sinful act can enslave you to that act, and that act can master you as a lifestyle. That is the slavery of sin. Paul the Apostle in Romans 6, cueing from this, writes, don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God and receive His approval. Now, an easy example would be an addiction. Somebody tries a substance because, well, it was fun. I was curious. And then they find out it felt good. So to recreate the feeling, the substance will be taken again. And then, especially in times of being down and depression, you want to feel really good, so you go back to the substance. Well, pretty soon, enough of those kind of choices, you're now mastered by the substance. You're in prison to it. You're a slave to it. Whoever commits sin, Jesus said, is a slave of sin. By the way, it's in the present tense. Whoever continually, habitually commits sin is the slave of sin. Any act can become a practice, and then the practice can become a prison. So sin brings slavery. Look at the next verse. Sin brings separation. Verse 35, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. 
Let me explain what he's getting at. Slaves were not permanent family members. They were hired. They were added on. They were owned by the family. But they were temporary workers. The son had a relationship with the father. The son isn't going away. He's permanently a part of the family. When the slave is gone, the son remains. The son will receive the inheritance. And so the idea here is that sin makes you a slave. If you're a slave, you're not a son. You're not really going to be part of that family unit. Sin always separates. And sin always separates us from God. God promised Adam, Adam, in the day that you eat thereof of that fruit, you're going to die. There's going to be a separation. That relationship of intimacy that we once enjoyed is going to be lost. In the day that you eat, you will surely die. There was a t-shirt that I saw. It said on the front, today's bait is tomorrow's plate. Clever shirt. Is a fisherman who wore it. Today's bait is tomorrow's plate. I thought, that's Satan's philosophy. He thinks of just the right bait to put out there and allure people into his ways, his values, his kingdom. And he tailors it according to the appetite of the fish. And he would say, if he could, of all of us, today's bait is tomorrow's plate. Because he loves to ensnare. He's the father of all lies, a liar from the beginning. Sin brings slavery. Sin brings separation. Look at the next verse. He continues, sin requires a Savior. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Here's the point. You continually sin. You're a slave. You're a slave. You're not a son. You're separated from the family. But the Son can make slaves into sons. The Son of God, Christ, if the Son sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. Here's the Son of God saying to people around Him who are enslaved, come and join my dad's house. Come on in and be a son as well. You don't have to be slaves any longer. I'll set you free. I'll give you true freedom. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's the truth of this verse. How does He do it? There's two principles. One is the principle of substitution. He takes our sin. God then treats Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that God can treat you like Jesus deserves to be treated. Romans 5, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. That's the principle of substitution. The second is the principle of surrender. When I as a slave recognize that and I place my trust in the finished work of the Son, I surrender to Him. I give my life to Him. I confess my sins. I'm His. So on the cross, as Jesus was there, He gave the greatest declaration of independence known to man. First words, Father, forgive them. Last words, it's finished. It's done. It's over. No more can be added to it. It's a finished work on the cross. It is finished. That means that the cross is God's big eraser. Don't think that God doesn't see our sin. He sees them there ever before Him, David said. But God through the cross has destroyed the evidence. He has erased 
He has set the prisoner free. A security guard in a penitentiary named John Bolton was walking a prisoner who was going to an arraignment for armed robbery. As he was escorting the prisoner, he noticed around the prisoner's neck was a chain with a cross. The security guard knew that this prisoner wasn't a religious guy. So he said, what's up with the cross? And the prisoner said, it's a good luck charm. Uh, John Bolton, the security officer, had a little more savvy than that. He said, let me take a closer look at it. It was a key. It was a key the prisoner had made that could, interestingly enough, unlock almost any set of handcuffs. This cross had the power to set a prisoner free. The cross, the cross of Christ, has the ultimate power to set any prisoner free. So, sin brings slavery. Sin and slavery bring separation. Sin and slavery demand a Savior, and that's where verse 36 come in. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, go down to verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. I, I, and I'm sorry for pronouncing that, but these are the most arrogant people you can imagine. We have God as our Father. Well, they're not going to like what Jesus is about to say. Verse 42, If God were your Father, you'd love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil. How does that sit with them? And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and he is the father of it. You and I belong to one of two households only. The household of God or the household of the devil. The household that embodies truth of which we are a disciple, or the household which embodies the ignorance of the truth, lies. We are either following the Son or we are slaves of sin. We are in one of those two camps. The issue is not what church do you go to. The issue isn't what religion do you belong to. The issue is what family do you belong to. Gods or the devils. And, and you, can, you can tell which one. There is a family resemblance. Everybody has a resemblance, and it gives it away. Whereby a lifestyle, though we're not perfect, somebody would be able to look at us and go, you got to be one of God's kids. You just remind me of them. Or, you remind me a lot of the other guy. There's some kind of resemblance going on. Now, go down to verse 48. This is the final freedom. Freedom from death. There's freedom from ignorance, freedom from sin, and freedom from death, verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, 
And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Wow, what a promise. Freedom from ignorance. You'll know the truth. It'll set you free. Freedom from slavery. Whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. And now freedom from death. You trust. You believe in me. You're never going to taste death. Talk about hitting a nerve that everyone is sensitive to. It's this nerve. People for years have been looking for the fountain of life. People want to live forever. I saw a special on television a time back. The name of this special was called Eternal Life. Subtitle, The Battle Against Aging. And it showed what incredible lengths people will go to to deny the inevitable. Aging, deterioration, death. They even interviewed three people on this program who claimed to be immortal. And I thought, as I heard the interview, I'd like to see another interview of these people in 20 years. They're not going to die, they said. They're not going to suffer deterioration. I wonder what they would look like. And I know they can get stuff done. So they go, I have, really do have eternal life. Mass denial of the inevitable. We want to live forever. You believe in me, Jesus said, you won't taste death. Of course, he's referring to spiritual death and spiritual life. And we know that for the Christian, death isn't the end, it's, it's the beginning. When a Christian dies, you can't even say the Christian died. You can say, he moved. He's relocated. He's been beamed above, above starship heaven, but he's not dead. Jesus in John 5 said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has present tense, eternal life, will not be condemned. He's crossed from death into life. To Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus died, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. A husband lost his wife. She died. A friend in she's in God's presence. She is more alive now than she ever was before. That's the life Jesus is speaking about. Here's a simple formula. Born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. Easy formula to understand, easy to figure out. If we're born once, and we are, look around, we're breathing, we're alive, we've been born physically. If that's all we've done and we haven't had a second birth, we haven't been born again, as Jesus said, we're going to die twice, physically and eternally, spiritually. But if we're born twice, physically, spiritually, by trusting in Christ, we're only going to die once at best. And then there's everlasting life after that. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'd rather die, depart, and be with Christ, he said, which is far better. Now, as a matter of contrast, look at two verses with me. Look over at verse 44 and compare that to verse 51. You'll see the contrast. Our Lord says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father 
you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And then verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Murderer versus life giver. Satan wants to take life, destroy, kill, murder. Jesus gives life. So, it would be better said of Jesus rather than Lady Liberty or even the United States of America, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest, true freedom. Though we celebrate the freedom from the tyranny of a king, are you free from the tyranny of the king, the God of this world, Satan himself? Do you follow, abide in, long for, love his truth as a disciple? Are you free from the tyranny of slavery to sin? And thus the freedom from death. I'm going to close with a statement made by a prominent leader. And then I'm going to tell you who said it and when it was written. He says, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Spoken April 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln. Looking at a nation then that already was bearing the signs of breakdown intoxicated with success, wealth, power, prestige, don't need anything, don't need anyone. He said, we need to get back to God. De Tocqueville was right. America's great because America is good. America ceases to be good. America will cease to be great. So here we are celebrating freedom, fireworks, great, have fun, do it. But keep in mind, we are a nation filled with people in bondage to spiritual ignorance, sin, and ultimately death. That's why the gospel must be preached. If people don't hear it from us, they will not hear it. They won't tell themselves how to get to heaven. They must hear it from us. We have the message of freedom and liberty. Let freedom ring. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you and you alone have the key to unlock the mysteries of life. You and you alone have provided the only means of escape from the inevitability that will come upon every human being, and that is what the Bible calls the last enemy called death. Oh Lord, thank you 
praise you that our freedom comes from knowing, loving, abiding in truth. Lord, I pray that your word, your truth, the Bible, we'd never get bored with it. We wouldn't see it as just something that we should have on a coffee table, but it'd be in our hearts. And our lives would be continually set free in, in relationships and in, um, in, in every aspect of decisions by specific truths that deal with those areas. Set us free, Lord. Set us free today, Lord. Set us free more and more. May your truth penetrate deep into our hearts. Set us free, Lord, from sin. Some carry around and are involved in besetting sins that have gripped their lives and they're in bondage and they yearn to breathe free. May they come to you in that area and be set free. Lord, ultimately, thank you, praise you that we're going to live forever if we've trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross, making you our substitute and ourselves surrender to you. Lord, I'd also pray for anyone who would be here this morning at this service who, who has come and they've come to church, they haven't yet come to you. They haven't yet surrendered their life to Christ. Doesn't mean they're not good people, they're not moral, upright, people with values and status and and uh, good standing in a community, but in their hearts, they're still in bondage. Set them free. Give them liberty. As they would say yes to Christ. As we're praying, our heads are bowed and we're thinking about our own lives, our own futures. If perhaps you've come this morning, but you haven't come yet to Christ, you haven't surrendered your life to Him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. There's no better day than on Independence Day to declare your independence from the world and from a lifestyle that you don't want anything to do with and you want to be set free. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand up. Just raise it up right now. I'm going to notice you and we're going to pray for you as we close this service. You're just raising your hand up. You're saying, yeah, pray for me. I, I need to give my life to Christ. I'm going to do this once for all. I'm going to surrender. Raise it up so I can see it. God bless you. Let's go. Anyone else? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for these hands and more than that, these people who have gathered here have come into contact with your truth and once again, by your Spirit, the truth is making them free. Beautiful to watch, Lord. It's great to be a part of. You've come to set the captives free. I pray, Lord, that you would bless those who have raised these hands and as they turn their lives to you, would you turn all of your resources to them? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. If you raised your hand this morning after the service, come up and meet one of our counselors, our pastors, and just say, I raised my hand. We want to give you something. Explain what it is to do next after this morning.
But uh, we want to close with a song, all of us singing together, and make it a prayer today. God bless America. You remember after 9-11, probably for the first time in history, both houses of Congress agreed on something. And they got together and they sang, God bless America. And uh, we were seeking God on that day because our freedom was attacked in New York City. And let's ask God to bless America. And as you pray that, ask God to bless America with truth. Ask God to bless America with evangelists. And God bless America with pastors and Christians who would spread the seed of the gospel and go out. Let's pray. Let's